We talk about Ohio Governor Mike DeWine all the time on this podcast, but we don't talk about Lieutenant Governor John Husted all that much unless we're talking about the failures of the unemployment system. Today, we're talking about John Husted. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and it's Wednesday, so that means we have Courtney Astolfi on. Let's get going. Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Houston took the unprecedented step a while back of joining the board of a bank while still in office. Really strange thing to do. Now we know how much he's getting paid for that gig. Courtney, what's he getting? Yes, we obtained a, a copy of his state ethics declo- disclosure filing, and, and that filing spells out his salary. Now we know for sure it is $21,600 is what the lieutenant governor was paid to serve on the corporate board of the Columbus area Heartland Bank. It's got about 18 branches around the area, does personal commercial banking, and Houston caught some heat last year when he joined the board. You know, back then he did tell us his his compensation here was around $20,000, so we have confirmation that that, that is indeed what it was around. And, and we also learned from this filing that that he p- personally owns at least $1,000 worth of Heartland Bank stock, and he also owes them at least a grand for a home equity line of credit. And, you know, when we went to his spokeswoman to just hear what he had to say now that we have this information in hand, she kind of dismissed this as old news, and, and she said the disclosure showed the same information that Houston had disclosed a while ago. It's not old news. Every day he sits on that board, it is current news. Nobody's done this before. And look, it's not just this bank, right? It's who are the other board members that he's hobnobbing with that now have an in to the governor's office? Who are the largest clients of this bank that now have an in with the governor's office? This presents conflict upon conflict, and he shouldn't do it. That's why elected officials don't generally do it. And I expect when he runs for governor in three years, which everybody expects, Specs, his opponents will throw this at him because you just don't do it. So forget the old news thing. We'll be talking about this for the next years. It's old news. It's current news. It's future news. John Houston, we're still talking about you. It's just worth noting, you talked about the potential entanglements here. And, and we did note in the story that the bank's CEO, Scott McComb, he does have political ties to the to the state Republicans, and he's given them at least seventeen grand since twenty sixteen. Like you said, we know Houston has his eyes set on the governor's office, and in the meantime, like you said, this has already rankled feathers in Columbus. Well, while they didn't name Houston personally, a group of GOP lawmakers in January did introduce an ethics reform bill that would bar elected officials like Houston from holding paid corporate board positions. Well, so this does have some scrutiny. Yeah, nobody ever thought you would need such a bill because it's so obvious they shouldn't do this. And yet Houston's doing it. It's wrong. There's Look, you cannot make any argument in favor of this, but there are a whole bunch of reasons why it's not holy. You want to be in a private banking world? Quit your job. Stop representing Ohio. But when you run for lieutenant governor, the citizens are you who you have to put first. John Houston is bad news here. You know what I love about this story, though? He was in Cleveland on Monday talking to the GCP. He was the keynote speaker. And that's when this story broke. So all these people that are bored to tears sitting in the audience listening to him go on and on suddenly are looking at their phones going, ah, now I know exactly how much he's making. Probably was not a great moment Well, and for wasn't him. that... 
what that ethics bill, Courtney, was that the one that was introduced basically at the eve of the householder trial to like be like, look, we're doing something about ethics in the Republican Party. I mean, just look at that trial to see how things are bought and paid for in Ohio. So, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, he should resign immediately. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Columbus becoming one of Joe Biden's five workforce hubs across the nation? Lisa, it seems like Columbus has become the preeminent city of Ohio, and we really are the second run. Well, they have a lot more land and a lot of bigger tracts of land, I guess, among other things. But the Biden administration chose Columbus as one of five federal workforce hubs. And this would be where job training programs specific to industries in the region will be developed with employers, unions, high schools and community colleges and state and local officials. So Columbus was chosen along with Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Augusta, Georgia and Phoenix. And they were picked because there's a concentration of public private sector investments focused on specific industries in these areas. And of course, Intel is, you know, going up right outside of Columbus. Columbus was chosen specifically because it had a variety of industries, including semiconductors, transportation, and clean energy. They also have done pioneer work in registered apprenticeships and workforce development programs at community colleges, which is exactly what these workforce hubs are looking for. These hubs will not get any money in the federal budget, but they will be seeking existing federal grants to expand pre-apprenticeships and registered apprenticeships. And this will hopefully allow people to pursue successful careers in Ohio without having to leave their hometown. It's got to kill the economic development people in Cleveland. It's not just Columbus, which has emerged as the number one city in Ohio. It's Pittsburgh, the most hated city for Clevelanders. They're one. I mean, two cities that are two hours away from Cleveland are getting this attention, and Cleveland is not. It's not a good sign. Well, and I did see some reporting last night, and we've reported on this, is that trying to assemble greenfield land in Cleveland is really hard. I mean, they need 10 or more acres, a lot of these industries. We just don't have that. Yeah, and that's what Justin Bibb is trying to do with that ARPA money, start assembling tracks that they can clean up and make ready. But that's not something that happens overnight. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, I thought we had the enhanced Ohio driver's license when we jumped through all those hoops three years ago to get it. But there's an even more enhanced license now. What is the difference and should people get it? Right. So the real ID is for getting on a plane. And this enhanced license is for getting over the border. All the states that have them are on the Canadian border. That's Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Vermont, and Washington. But most of them got it about a decade ago. So there's a little question as to why Ohio is doing this now. But the idea is that this ID would be easily help you to get into Canada, Canada, Mexico, and the Caribbean rather than having a passport. Because there's a it's kind of like a TSA pre-check. There's a chip in the card that lets customs guards access more information about you. And the idea is that this came up about a decade in Ohio and the ACLU really protested, said this would be easy to track people. But (laughs) in that past decade, we've gotten tracked everywhere else. And this actually seems pretty quaint what the government can do compared to literally what is happening every day with your cell phone. But 
the but I read that Canada yeah. is finding this obsolete. They're abandoning it because there are much better methods to do this now than have people carry a really thick driver's license, which we all want to make our wallets thicker. I know. Well, I, so it just seems odd that you'd get into this now. I mean, I joked this morning. What's next for the state of Ohio? Giving all state employees AOL email addresses? <laughs> I mean, the Canadian provinces did stop offering them because of low demand. I don't know what the cost of being able to provide this. Obviously, it's it's got to cost something to set up all of the infrastructure and the printer or whatever it is needed. So I think Jeremy Peltzer, who did this story, is going to look in a little bit more into what it's going to cost the state. I don't have a problem with you know, the technology, it still works. It'll still get you over the border if you don't want to have a passport. I mean, that's a a separate process. Um, you can get those at the library or the post office. It takes about eight weeks, I think. So I don't know how long this would take you to get in Ohio. But it is interesting that I think they, they just talked about it a long time ago. And then it kind of like snuck into this one of the year end bills. And it was just like, okay, let's let's do that. They one of I think the Senate took it out, the House put it back in. I'm not exactly sure, but it, it did kind of come up late in the game. <laughs> Can you imagine what it's going to be like at the driver's license office where somebody goes up now and says, yeah, I want to renew my license, and they start going through the options? It's going to confuse them. Well, that's true. And and the ha- I, I, so we already got an email from a reader saying, no, Florida's already had this. I'm pretty sure they mean the real ID. So people are confused between the difference between the you know the real ID that you need to get on a plane eventually, I think it's by 2025, and then this enhanced license that works as a passport. The Truckers Association says it'll help with transporting goods between the countries. And obviously, that is a big industry going back and forth in the border there. And that's why all the states on the Canadian border have this. But yeah, you wonder like, <laughs> just talking about pay to play so much in this state, did somebody say, hey, we really need this and and donate to a dark money campaign? Yeah, I it doesn't make sense to me. And look, my bet is the truckers by now all have the Nexus card, which you can get. Well, there's get actually it. fast, right? That's a yeah. separate thing. Nexus, right. Yeah, fast is for... Um, specifically for trucking and, and the goods that you have. So yeah, if you're going back and forth, you're probably have you something have more than your regular passport. Yeah. I just, I don't know who this is going to serve. You're listening to today in Ohio. The pressure was intense on Cleveland city council president, Blaine Griffin to do the right thing by the West side market, but he did not totally succumb. What's become of Justin Bibb's original $20 million and then $15 million request to get that place put back together. Courtney. Yeah, on Monday during the West Side Market, ARPA funding proposals really only public hearing. Council started out reducing that number to $10 million before they started talking about all of it, they went in and, and amended it down to $10 million, and that's what ultimately passed. Now, Mayor Justin Bibb's administration still wanted to see that higher sum of $15 million, but you could kind of tell in, in the hearing they were fighting a losing battle, uh, you know. And, and, and this is $10 million is less than a quarter of the $45 million that market officials say is needed to really get the basic infrastructure of the building, like up to decent standards. They say it needs repairs to the roof the building envelope, basically the exterior, electrical systems, HVAC, and the basement where vendors prepare food. And and Bibb's market strategist, Jess Trevisano, said during the hearing on Monday that $10 million, it won't be enough to do it all. Uh, she said it could be enough to add a new roof and fix some structural issues, but not enough to fix up the basement. And she said the basement stuff is is what would be needed 
in one example, she talked about a vendor being interested to come to the market um, who who currently, I think, is a business owner in Glenville. And, and, and there's no ability, there's not enough ability to cook and prepare food in the basement to accommodate vendors who really need that ability. And they want to see the basement picked up, but this money will not will not go far enough to do that. And and when we heard from council about why they were looking to not put down the amount of money that Bib requested, and they're basically pointing to all the other needs around Cleveland. We've been hearing this debate for a few weeks, and, and that's what came out on Monday. Blaine Griffin said, it's palpable. The anger that comes from some of Cleveland's communities because they don't feel like they're getting anything, essentially with this ARPA money. Yeah. He said it is about competing priorities. And we've got to figure that out. The part that I think is worth noting is council members did start talking about maybe using the money they saved by not putting it towards the market to some food desert proposals. The central neighborhood lacks one. The northeast side of the city lacks a full service grocery store. We have not seen concrete proposals, though. In previous conversations, Griffin has said he wants to fund neighborhood projects like one we'll be talking about a little later on this project. So we still have a question mark of council saying it's too much money going to the market, what Bib wanted, but we don't quite know what they want to do instead with that money. Yeah, and Blaine Griffin sounded overwrought with his palpable line. Here's the thing. We have some very smart readers and listeners in our audience, and one of them sent me a great note to put this in perspective today. They said, Cleveland City Council, especially of late, has been extremely vocal about slumlords, especially absentee slumlords that refuse to upgrade their property. And here they are running what is basically a completely mm-hmm. rundown place operating like slumlords. And my bet is if you were a slumlord who was getting attacked by the city and you came in and said, yeah, okay, okay, I'll spend a quarter of what I need to get the thing moving again, the city would scream, holy hell. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. City council voted Monday night to maintain its position as a slumlord when it comes to the West Side market. That's the legacy of this city council president now. You know, and that was a notion, I forget exactly who, who said it, but that was a notion that was brought up in Monday's hearing. And and and, and that is a, a counter argument that was floated here. It is worth noting the Dave Abbott. He's the former head of the Gun Foundation. He would serve as chair of the market's nonprofit if they can get that up and running. And and he said philanthropy is not really interested in in doing the government's job mm. for it. Basically he said philanthropy is not going to come in and supplement money that the city failed to put down to take care of its own building. And, and, and that's why Bibbs administration was looking for that higher amount. They thought it could go a long way towards saying, we're putting down half the money needed for repairs, Hey, private and philanthropy money meet us halfway. But Abbott said, that, Abbott said it's going to be harder to make that argument if the city's only throwing down that, a smaller fraction. Right, sell it then. If you're not going to do your job mm-hmm. as the landlord, sell it and have somebody else completely take it over. But while you're maintaining ownership of a city asset, you have to take care of the place. This is, this is unconscionable, really, what they're doing. They're, they're not going to maintain this treasure because of all of this squabbling, and they would never accept this from a private landowner. If somebody private owned this thing and it was as ramshackle as it's become, they'd be all over it. They'd be issuing citations left and right. Lisa, you sound like you wanted to say something. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, this is decades of them ignoring all of their city-owned assets, not just the West Side Market, and they can't keep kicking this can down the road. And like Courtney said, you know, you can't expect philanthropists to jump in. This is, I feel this is egregious, and I'm kind of angry at Blaine Griffin for his his, uh, histrionics over this. Yeah. You know, Lisa, you make a good point. There's rec centers in desperate need. There is tons of of city capital money that needs to go out. That, that, that mm-hmm. that's all across the city. I think it's worth noting here that part of the Bib administration's desire to get all this money at once was to, you know, keep an eye on on the checkbook. Basically, they said if they used ARPA money here, it'd be quicker and cheaper mm-hmm. than if they sought to make these repairs using bond bonds because then you have to pay interest. They also noted that the West Side market is an increasing drain on the general fund. The general fund since 2015 has had to get in there and supplement the market because it can't generate enough self-sustaining revenue. You know, Bibs folks are making the argument that if we got these repairs in, we could get more vendors in mm-hmm. and we could be on the path to financial stability. Yeah. The future. It's a failure of leadership by Blaine Griffin. He could have marshaled this and done the right thing, and he didn't. And I loved the reader for sending in that note. Thank you. It's Today in Ohio. How is Amazon going to provide us with health care? Reporter Julie Washington took a run through their new service. Lisa, what did she find? Yeah, it's called Amazon Clinic Telehealth, and it launched in November. It's available in Ohio and 32 other states, but it is joining a crowded field of virtual health services that basically blossomed during the pandemic when doctors' offices were closed. It's a $77 billion industry in climbing. Uh, the chief medical officer and GM for Amazon Clinic, Dr. Nwora Ayogu, says they want to give patients access to quick interactions with clinicians for common health concerns that are easily addressed online, so nothing complicated or serious. They will only treat 25 common conditions, including uterine tract infections, pink eye, sinus infections, toe fungus, and so forth. They do not accept private insurance, but you might be able to use your insurance for any prescriptions that result from your visit online. It's for adults 18 to 64. And People, of course, are concerned with privacy protection, particularly when Amazon or big tech giants are involved. But an investigation or a couple investigations by health news journalists found that privacy protection is pretty good for Amazon Clinic, even though HIPAA doesn't specifically cover telehealth. They say actually Amazon Clinic is the only platform that's not sharing its patient data with tech companies. An average visit would be about $30 to $35, about the same as a copay. Uh, patients can choose a virtual clinic in their state and they can see how much it's going to cost and what the wait time will be to connect with the caregiver. And then any follow up questions from the visitor addressed either by email or text. I wonder why they ended at age 64. Maybe it, maybe geriatric medicine is too complicated to do this way. It's just, I get why they wouldn't want to do pediatrics because of the specialty mm-hmm. part of that, but it just seems odd that they cut it off at 64 because I don't think 64 is that old. Do you, Lisa, think 64 is that old? Well, being beyond that age, no, but I, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, a lot of people my age are have a lot of comorbidities. 
you know, diabetes, you know, kidney problems. So maybe that's, they just want simple stuff. Yeah. And they probably fear the liability. It seems like an interesting back channel. We all know how hard it is to get an appointment with a doctor just now. Everybody's waiting months. And so if this is a quick way, you know, I I don't know what the answer is, but I wondered if you tested positive for COVID, would this be the easiest way to get the antivirals? Because going through your doctor can, can slow you down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I keep asking you, Laura, if you've started your open water swimming in Lake Erie yet this year, and you keep saying no. And now we've done a story to explain why. Do tell. It is too cold. It's going to be too cold for a couple of weeks. I might get in at the beginning of June in a wetsuit, but... Right now, it's about 50 degrees, uh, according to the National Weather Service in Cleveland. Of course, that is taken at the crib, so it's a few miles out and way down underwater. It's not the same as you get on the beach, you know, at the surface of the water. So that'll be a few temp- few degrees warmer. But this is dangerous for swimming if you're not used to it. So if you are going out at all on a kayak, on a paddleboard, you should be wearing a life jacket because your body could go into shock just by feeling that kind of temperature surrounding if you're not ready for it. So we could be up to um, 50 to 60 degree is is probably the range of the beach right now. And then we could be 57 by the end of the month down at the crib. Tops out at 75 for several days in August. So it's it's like 80 dur- by the shore in August. We get, we get really nice water in Lake Erie because it's so shallow. It warms up so quickly. But Laura, what's your personal threshold? When do you go into the water? Um, so I was in San Diego a couple of weeks ago for spring break and the water temperature was 52. And I did go in in a wetsuit, but I am telling you, that's like the ice cream headache automatic. Like you cannot put your face in. Um, your whole sinuses are just like screaming with pain. But I was so impressed there that there were open water swimmers, some of them not even wearing wetsuits. So if you've trained your body, like those people who swim in the English Channel or swim, swim off of San Francisco all year round, you could do it. But if you are just like a regular human being, like this is unacceptable. This hurts. What's your season then? Do you basically wait to Memorial Day? Oh, it's going to have to be past Memorial Day to to get in for anybody. I mean, I, by the, the time school gets out, mid-June, I'll probably be swimming. And then the, what really stops you, stops me from swimming is like it gets, it's not light enough in the morning, right? Like by the end of the summer, by the, by Labor Day, it's, I can't get a swim in before work. I could guess I could do it on the weekend. The water's not that cold, but it's just the, uh, the sunshine. All right. And you did go out on a paddleboard, which I I mean, you could end up swimming involuntarily, but you must have some kind of great balance or something. Well, so I went out on the Rocky River and got into the lake. And once I was in the lake, I went down on my knees because it's a lot easier to stay on the board if you're not standing up, right? But I did end up having to rescue a friend who couldn't paddle against the wind. It was more the wind than the waves. And so used my leash because you have to have a leash on your paddleboard that connects your foot to your board and used it to attach it to her board and then paddled her in. But I'm telling you, like this is three days later and I think my legs just stopped hurting from, from that exertion. So always okay. wear your life jacket and, you know, have your, have a radio if you're going out. But I'm no. curious what temperature, what is your lowest temperature? I don't really know. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I would say that probably mid sixties. I mean, oh, mm-hmm. like, you know, low to mid sixties, I could do with a wetsuit, like a competition pool that will feel really cold is like a 72 maybe degrees. And like the kind of water we all like in a swimming pool is mid eighties. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. Question answered. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Although City Council has battled over the West Side Market in Cleveland, they had a different reception to the proposal for a Hispanic cultural center. Courtney, what is that about? Yeah, this this is a cool project in the Clark Fulton neighborhood. It's been over a decade in the making, and it's called Centro Via 25. And it would be a Hispanic cultural center in the hub of you know, the state's largest Latino community, I believe, is here in Cleveland in the Clark Fulton neighborhood where more than half of the residents are Hispanic. And and this hub is would bring something new that the neighborhood has not really had at all. It it it, it would it's a full rehab of a thirty-two thousand square foot warehouse converted into a market, kiosk for small business, meeting space, multi-purpose spaces working spaces for businesses, and a specialty grocery store. And and Janice Contreras, the executive director of the Northeast Ohio Hispanic Center for Economic Development, who's been involved in this project for a long while, said the goal of this space is we really want you to feel like you're walking down the streets of old San Juan. And, and city council's looking to put $1.5 million in ARPA money towards this project that would complement about a million dollars that was already sent over from Cuyahoga County's pot of ARPA money. And, you know, council members said this would bring a hub to Cleveland's Hispanic community that other ethnic groups get. You know, you look at Little Italy, Slavic Village, even Irish Town Bend. You know, they kind of noted the Hispanic community really hasn't had that hub here. and, And that's the hope for this. Councilwoman Jasmine Santana is the first Latina on council. She's really championed this project. And this is the kind of project Blaine said might be possible in lieu of those West Side Market money, <laughs> more kinds of things like this. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right. You shouldn't listen to this next question if you're about to go out to eat. How many Cleveland restaurants have been cited with health code violations in the most recent round of inspections? Lisa, these are some of our most popular pieces of content. <laughs> Everybody wants to know, is my restaurant filthy? Yeah, yeah. And we uh, apparently, this is the first time in 2023 that Cleveland.com series on food inspection violations has happened. We've had previous series. We've gone back to 2015, 2016, although it was paused during the pandemic. So um, we listed the top 24 violators for 2022-23, which ended on February 8th. Um, The critical violations are ones that may immediately lead to foodborne illness. So the number one with 94 violations, six of them critical, was Quincy Gas at 3939 uh, Community College Avenue and University Circle. Um, a number two was a tie between uh, Indian Delight at 5507 Detroit and Sunoco Family Foods Express at 3363 East 93rd. They all had 80, these two had 89 violations. Indian Delight, 13 of them were critical. Uh, Sunoco 11 were critical. I had to add the ones that I've eaten at. You know, you can look at the whole list at cleveland.com. But at number four, TikTok Tavern at 11526 Clifton, 85 violations, 17 of them critical. Uh, in a tie for number 15 was Superior Pho at 3030 Superior, 55 violations, nine of them critical. And tied for last place are Six Shooters Coffee at 4193 Pearl Road with 50 violations, seven of them critical. Same with Old Brooklyn Subway at 2144 Broadview. 
It does sound like a one guideline you might want to follow is to not eat any gas station food. <laughs> right. There are a lot of gas stations and convenience yeah. stores. Yeah. I mean, that just, it sounds like that has a high percentage of problems and that you could get sick if you eat there. But it is interesting. Some of these other restaurants you mentioned, like Superior Pho, it's very well, popular. And, and Superior Pho was a go-to for me before the pandemic, but I haven't been back since because it's in a funky old little center with bad ventilation and low ceilings. So I'm like, there are other places to eat pho where I feel a little bit more comfortable. And I hate to say that because their pho is good. So, you know, I don't want to disparage them, but it's funny. It's the best in Cleveland. I'm sad to hear that news. Uh, Zachary (laughs) Smith put this list together and he goes and takes photos of a lot of these places. You can Mm -hmm. see them. But he actually eats at some of them when he goes there. Like he's like, yeah, they're not super critical. You know, he looks through the list. He's like, I'm fine with eating here. And Rich Exner used to do the same thing. So it's not like you should never eat at these places. Like check out what the the violations are for and if you're comfortable. We're not saying that these are death traps. Okay. If you say so, check them out. They're on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, we talk food. Let's talk travel. What is the latest free newsletter we're offering at cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, Laura? This is so cool. This is Susan Glazer's. Uh, so you can travel with Susan Glazer every Thursday at 1130. It'll come in your inbox. And Susan is a delight. She travels to all sorts of accessible places. She writes really conversationally about trips you might want to take. This is not travel and leisure magazine with like the huts over Bora Bora where like it's like $25,000 a night and you're like yeah this just makes me feel bad about my life like these are tips you can use this week she writes about Lakeside for example the Chautauqua Institution on Lake Erie and it's fascinating the the details she goes into so it's it's great places it's perfect timing for the summer, right? When we're all ready for a vacation. And um, yeah, you can follow along with Susan. It's not just what she's writing this week, but you can find some of her past stories too. And they're still relevant. Yeah. The reason we did that is because when people read about camping out on the river or riding the bike through Amish country down South, they, they, they say, Oh, I want to do that. And then they forget about it by bringing mm-hmm. some of those back. It's a reminder. Uh, people love Susan. I, we, we barely mentioned this. And when I checked about a week ago, we were approaching 5,000 subscriptions already. Um, so if you want to sign up, cleveland.com slash newsletters, that's where all our newsletters are. You could subscribe to any of and them. They're free. They come at different intervals. You don't have to be, you know, a Clevelander to enjoy this because it's so travel and she's going to be traveling to Dublin this year on the first, uh, air, is it Aer Lingus flight? Aer Lingus. Yeah, and so all sorts of fun stuff she's got planned for this year. She does gear what she writes to where Ohioans mm-hmm. generally vacation. Yes. So if you live anywhere in Ohio, this is relevant to you. Uh, and she's a much celebrated writer. She won the award a couple of years ago for being the running the best travel section, beating out the Boston Globe and the New York Times. And she's a one-person operation. So way to go, Susan. Check out her newsletter. That's it for the Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Thursday.